Hey folks, welcome back. This is your host, Ryan Kennedy. And today's episode, we're going to be diving into some really powerful and practical strategies surrounding sleep optimization, breathing mechanics, your immune system, vitamin D, sensible sun exposure, and so much more. And I brought on the perfect guest, Dr. Joel, who's been practicing dentistry for over 30 years. Um, but he's recently, I guess not so recent, but he switched over into really focusing on treating chronic disease uh, organically through nutrition and lifestyle and behavior changes. And he's really has this groundbreaking sleep restoration program, and he's helping people to overcome a lot of common sleep issues uh, like insomnia, snoring, clenching or grinding of your jaw and obstructive sleep apnea. And I know from my experience working with people across the globe, these issues run rampant and our sleep is such a foundational element to our health. And when we're not sleeping well, everything else starts to fall apart. And when you have one or more of these sleep issues, it's really hard to sleep well. So I'm really grateful to have Dr. Joel with us uh, today because he's like a modern day Weston Price. Uh, Dr. Weston Price is a pioneer in the health, natural health and nutrition space uh, who's you know, taught us all a great deal with his research findings uh, in his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. So with that long intro, Dr. Joel, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. It's great to be here. I'm very excited. So I'd like to start by talking about a, uh, really giving a fundamental explanation of proper breathing mechanics and how this impacts our sleep and our, our facial structure. You know, I recently gave a keynote talk and, you know, during the end of the, the lecture, one of the questions from the audience, they asked me if I could only give one recommendation, one single piece of advice to someone about their health, what would it be? And my answer was learn how to breathe properly because we're never taught how to breathe. It's one of the most basic human functions. And we're taught all these things in school, but we're never taught how to, how to use our breath, how to actually breathe properly. So I'd like to dive into that to, to kick things off today. Right. Great. Well, um, it's an interesting topic. And I know that these days, so in, in this space, when we start to think about uh, ancestral health or more functional medicine, looking at root cause medicine rather than treating the symptoms, breathing is always there. And why, why is that? Why is breathing so critical? And why is someone like Wim Hof? What's the importance of this? Why is James Nestor selling these books like hotcakes about breathing? And that's because you need to think about what it is that we need as live human animals to survive. Now, you can go for a very long time without eating as we're seeing fasting come up and up in popularity. And you can now really go a long time without water as we start to talk about dry fasting. And I want to put a cautionary note, we need to think about dehydration. So when we talk about dry fasting, this should be a discussion between people who are very aware of what it is and what the dangers are. Sure. So you can go for months without food. You can go for at least a couple of days without water, but how long can you go without air? Three minutes, if you're a, if you're a sponge diver or whatever, maybe four or five but that's it. And so breathing is the most important thing that this body needs to stay alive. If you don't breathe, it's over. And why is that? Well, you know, as well as I do, is that we need oxygen and everyone thinks that oxygen is nourishing. And I kind of laugh at that because oxygen is corrosive. It's dangerous and we have to package it up. We have to put it onto molecules. We got to keep it safe because it's so dangerous. But 
We still need it. And what do we need it for? Well, we need it for the very end of how we process food is that we use these electrons that we put through the electron transport chain and we're done. They got to go somewhere. So where do we put them? We put them onto, we, we put these electrons onto water and we create a molecule of water at the end. So the oxygen is the final electron acceptor to make H2O inside your mitochondria. And that water is very special because your body made it itself. So this is the primary reason that we're alive. We have mitochondria and all multicellular life needs mitochondria to produce the energy that we need to stay alive. And without oxygen, game over. So of course, breathing is one of the most important things. And so a lot of people, I'm calling it chronic mouth breathers. You know, they're, they're breathing in and out through their mouth. And I'd love you to shed some light into why this is not consistent with our biology on how we should be breathing and then elaborate more on what people can do, simple switches to correct that. Sure. So there's two different aspects to this. And what I want people to understand is that you could be breathing wrong all day long. And you may need to retrain your breathing and we can, we'll, you know, get into the details of that. But when you fall asleep, the second you're asleep, your controlled breathing is gone and you are relying on your autonomic nervous system. And that's the part of your brain that regulates all of your housekeeping duties, your circulation, your digestion, and your breathing. You're really relying on your body to breathe normally. And when you're, when your conscious mind shuts off, these things are beyond your control. So that's a discussion that people aren't having yet. And that's part of why I'm bringing my information forward as someone who specializes or focuses in sleep. So we need to go back to what a human is. A human is the most highly evolved animal on this planet, depending on your definition of being evolved. And um, we evolved because of this environment. Our bodies were formed over millions of years to fit into this environment. And when we live in our natural habitat and we follow Mother Nature's rules for eating and behavior, that's a hunter-gatherer. So humans evolved to be hunter-gatherers. But now we've changed our environment so profoundly that we live in the modern world that we can't be hunter-gatherers anymore. So we need to think about what is it that we can do as human animals now living technically in captivity. And, you know, these walls really are cages that we think is our natural habitat. And then we need to think about how can this affect our bodies? And it goes right back to Weston A. Price. And I want to bring him up because he was really a pioneer in so many ways. We're really lucky that at the time that he decided to travel around the world, that he was taking photographs. And this was, this was something that was really important because this was a time in history where the major medical paradigm was one of eugenics. And that was the belief that people had a genetic predisposition for how evolved they were. And people with lighter skin were deemed to be more evolved and people with darker skin were deemed to be less evolved, which is kind of laughable, although we are seeing still a lot of struggle with our ideas of racism. And what people should understand is that your skin color reflects where your ancestors evolved and the UVB radiation in that location. And what I mean by UVB radiation, I mean is, is that it's a combination of how much UVB radiation is coming in, depends on your elevation, uh, the atmospheric conditions. People with the darkest skin came from initially areas that had the highest level of UVB radiation, uh, in radiation in general, because if the radiation is too strong, you're gonna die. 
And so the skin colors evolved because of those locations. And this is important because humans technically are solar powered animals and we don't just have to protect ourselves from the sun. But we utilize the energy of the sun in many different ways. And one of those ways is vitamin D. So we look at Weston Price and his main discovery was something that we now are seeing coming up everywhere is epigenetics. And epigenetics means above genetics. So everyone has their own DNA. It's their own blueprint of all the different chemicals that we make. And that's not even including our gut microbiome and the other microbes that we rely on. But just basically our DNA is a template that we're going to copy to make different things. And how we access that template is controlled by epigenetics. And what controls that? That's the environment. So Weston Price traveled around the world and he discovered that the populations of indigenous people that were just coming into contact with Western society, he was seeing a complete collapse of the mouth, the teeth and the airways. Now, at that time, he wasn't making the notes about sleep apnea or insomnia. He was really seeing that there was no longer enough room for all the wisdom teeth, all 32 teeth. There was not enough room. Uh, the, the arches were very narrow. There was a lot of gum disease and a lot of dental decay. And Price went on this journey in such an interesting, for such an interesting reason, the same reason that we're looking at these blue zones. We're looking at these areas saying, well, people in these blue zones, they live to over 100 and they're very healthy. Let's go examine the conditions that they're living in, which is a great idea. But Weston Price figured this out 80 years ago, and he said to himself, literally, my patient's teeth are terrible. They're falling apart. I want to go to populations where people have great teeth and I want to look at what they're doing. So these blue zones, this is not a new idea. Western Price was really a, a profound innovator when it comes to this. And what he found, which is the most interesting. So he's here in the 1930s traveling around, taking pictures of these populations. And everyone's saying that the dental arches are collapsing because of a mixing of races. And that's, you know, the nature of what medicine was in those times. He was looking at this very differently because he said to himself, well, you know, over generations, things can change through evolution. But he saw in one generation, mom and dad had perfect teeth, no decay, no crowded room for all 32 teeth. And then next generation, the child has Debt, terrible decay, profound gum disease, lack of room for all the teeth, and a, a general breakdown of not just the teeth, but the health of the, of the person in general. And he was so interesting because he didn't just look at one person. He looked at a combination. So if there's a, a siblings and one person was eating the indigenous diet and one was eating the modern diet, which was very high in cereal, uh, sugar, um, basically what we're dealing with today, processed foods. Um, that are really not our, our foods. These are not the foods that our bodies designed to evolve on. And he saw these different people's, their, their dental health falling apart in one generation. And that can't be genetic. That has to be environmental. So he was really the father of, of the entire um, epigenetics movement. And I don't know anyone else who was really so unique in that they've documented this because at that time, you know, the science isn't what we're expecting today. Um, I've had people criticize him saying, well, there was no uh, double blind peer reviewed studies. That's not important. He went with a camera and he did something that's probably the most important thing you can do is use science and powers of observation and common sense. And he was smart enough to say, why is it mom and dad have these beautiful, perfect arches and the kids, their mouths are falling apart. What is it? And 
The scariest or strangest part is that Weston Price brought this down to a very simple level. He said, industrial seed oils, sugar, processed bleached flour, these were the things that were destroying the health of these people as they came into the modern world. And that's exactly where we are today, except it's worse because we have the same problem, more industrial seed oils, and we have the added terrifying benefits or problem of pesticides and chemicals. And I like to always quote glyphosate because it is the most used um, and expanding herbicide, pesticide, call it what you want. It's a poison. It's a man-made poison that we have introduced into our food chain. And it's amplifying the poor health issues that we were already going through from the time that um, modern man started to eat these foods that are really not for us. Hunter-gatherers didn't grow crops, corn, grain, soy. These are not foods that we were designed to eat or evolved to eat. We really evolved to eat ruminants and we will, we're omnivores. That's why we're so successful. So we can eat almost anything, but our preferred food has always been meat. That's how we became the top of the food chain by starting with bone marrow. And then as that fat, high fat content improved our brains, becoming hunters. So um, it all goes back to the original understanding of what's happening to humans, mouse. And now you have to think about this. We're still, now we're still talking about breathing, but where does your air come in? It comes in through your mouth and through your nose. And so the structure is going to dictate function. And if you are not breathing properly, it's terrifying because it can change the structure of the jaw, especially in children who are growing. This is the most important thing. If you have a perfectly formed airway, you can still have sleep or breathing problems, but it's in the formative years when a child is growing that the airway itself is so critical to be able to develop properly. And that comes from normal breathing. And just real quick, normal breathing is always through the nose. Why? Because the nose filters humidifies and adds nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. And we have an actual action. Your cerebellum is the part of your brain that regulates muscular your, your muscle coordination. And we have this coordinated program. You inspire, you breathe in through your nose, your diaphragm goes down, bronchioles dilate, air goes in. This is our normal system of breathing. If we don't breathe through our nose and we start to breathe through our mouth, it changes everything. Because when you start to mouth breathe, you start to put pressure on the jaws itself. And now you create a narrow palate and a high arch and a completely abnormal system of breathing. So now you've actually created a broken human animal that doesn't even have the right anatomic structures to breathe normally. And no retraining is going to work unless you start to understand that the, the actual floor of the nose is on the roof of the mouth. And if you have a high uh, arch in your jaw and your 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 um, palate's narrow. You've now it, it totally taken up the space that should be available for your air and for your breathing. And that may be a little bit of a long answer, but that's basically what this comes down to. And it's interesting that as a dentist, you know, I do orthodontics, I do all these different things. This is where this all comes into play. I love that explanation and that deep dive into epigenetics because so many of us have been misled through the years to think we're a victim of our genetics. And if you get a disease, it's bad luck or bad genetics. And it's really empowering to understand for people, you are in control. You dictate your, your long-term faith of your, your fate of your health based on the day-to-day -day choices that you're making. And as far as practical strategies for some of the breathing mechanics to, 
you know, really elicit that nasal breathing. Cause like you said, day to day conscious breathing, we can keep our mouth shut, assuming we're not having a conversation right. and breathe through our nose. But when we fall asleep, it's then going to the autonomic nervous system, which like you mentioned, yeah. it's hard to, you're not really in control. Do you recommend to your patients to use like a piece of mouth tape, uh, which is becoming more common or what do you suggest? Right. So let's think about why would taping the mouth work? Well, we just had this discussion that nasal breathing is the optimal way to breathe. That's it. So the, when it comes to breathing, there's a lot of complexities. I know that um, when we start to get into sleep apnea and snoring, especially because these are malfunctions of breathing, that we start to think about a structural issue. So if you can't breathe through your nose, we want to think about why. There's two primary reasons why people can't breathe through their nose. And so this is going to go back to root cause. So if you tape someone's mouth who can't breathe through their nose, I don't think that's a good thing, especially if it's a child. However, if you have great nasal breathing and you tape your mouth and you have success, and that's great because what you're really doing is you're using a biohack, a physical thing that's going to hold your mouth together so that when your brain shuts off, your body has no choice but to pull air through its nose. So mouth taping can be life-changing for certain people, but we need to understand the entire syndrome and know that just like any allopathic medical treatment where you're not looking at the root cause, you start to hack this one thing and there could be downstream issues. So I want us to take one step back. Why can't people breathe through their nose? Allergies, deviated septum, um, swollen tonsils, um, and those are the main things, um, chronic colds, flus, that type of thing. And what's responsible for all of those when you dig down to the core, you find vitamin D and you find vitamin D there every time. If your nasal septum, now, if you got kicked in the face and you have a deviated septum and you can't breathe through your nose, then you need to go get surgery. If you have a deviated septum, you don't know why you probably still need to go to get surgery, but why do people have a deviated nasal septum? I'm going to go back to Weston A. Price. And the idea of what vitamin K2 is. So Weston Price discovered these two chemical factors, vitamin D3 and vitamin K2, which he called activator X. And these are the dynamic bone duo. These are the chemicals that regulate calcium in your body. And why is that important? Well, as your body forms, it has to put down calcium into your bones to grow from a structural perspective. If you don't get enough vitamin D when you're a child, number one, you won't have enough calcium. If you don't get enough vitamin K2 as a child, even the calcium you get is not going to be managed properly. So what happens is without the right amount of K2, even if you're getting enough calcium, the apposition of that calcium into your different structures is improper and you'll get early calcification of the nasal septum, which should be much more flexible and firm. It doesn't calcify till later. And then we have the additional issue if you're low on vitamin D, number one, your tonsils are going to be swollen because tonsil size is inversely proportional to vitamin D status. And what that means is that the lower the vitamin D, the bigger the tonsils. If your tonsils are huge, you're going to have a problem bringing in air. Um, if you have colds and flus, why would you have colds and flus? Well, vitamin D regulates the immune system. And if your vitamin D level is low, you're more prone to colds and flus. This was my life as a child. I had a cold or a flu. My parents used to call me the jolly green giant because I had, you know, I had mucus running out of my nose because I was so, such a vitamin D deficient kid. And so when you don't have enough D3 and enough K2, you have the complete breakdown of the system that's supposed to be the most important thing you can do to allow you to bring in air. And so mouth taping, you know, I, I'm so glad that sleep and breathing has come up, but 
in the same way that, you know, we're going to talk about sleep and there's so many experts on sleep saying, you know, you got to have a cool room, have the blinds drawn. These are all the ancillary things. What I want to get into is the biochemical issues that are related to poor sleep. The things that aren't your dog scratching your door, your cat jumping on you. That's what I'm interested in. There's enough people focused on these other things, which are all important. You must have the right sleep hygiene, but my focus is a deeper level because I am a clinician that looks in people's mouths all day long. And I'm really interested in our airways and treating sleep apnea as a clinician. I do this every day. I look into people's airways and I manage and monitor their sleep. So yes, mouth taping is great. Training yourself to breathe is great. Buteco breathing, all this stuff is great. But I'm always going to go down to the most basement level and say, well, why do I have tape? Why should I tape my mouth? Why would I need to? Hunter gatherers didn't have tape. Yeah, no, these are great points. And I love your approach. You're looking at this because all this, the stuff like you rattled off, like sleep temperature and any type of, you know, sleep supplements like melatonin. It's like, well, why aren't you producing enough melatonin? Why do you feel the need to supplement? And then you look at the, you know, all these different variables, they're all kind of not addressing the foundational root cause of why you're having trouble with sleep. So you mentioned vitamin D's correlation. I love, you know, I find this fascinating with your work of how you tie vitamin D with sleep apnea and other sleep issues, which, you know, a lot of people associate mainly with obesity, which can definitely be a a contributing factor. But I love how you explain this direct link between vitamin D status and sleep problems. And so diving a level deeper, what other variables are contributing, you know, physiologically to some of these chronic issues people have with sleep? Right. So let's think about this um, back before we moved indoors and were civilized, hunter-gatherers slept in, they didn't sleep on sleep number beds and they didn't have fancy sheets. They slept on the ground with animals and all kinds of stuff. And when you watch those shows like um, Naked and Alone or Naked and Afraid or yeah. Survivor, you see just how much we forget what it was like to live out in the wild. So the idea that you need this perfectly quiet room, totally blacked out and this perfect mattress that cools you and all this stuff There's a deeper reason, guys. This is not, it shouldn't be this hard to sleep. And my favorite of all is the commercials where they say, you snore, no problem. Just raise your bed. (laughs) Like, let's take this seriously. Um, Hunter-gatherers didn't have beds that would be elevated. Yeah. So really, we have a breakdown of our sleep system, and it's really profound, and it's global, and I don't know how many people are really sleeping normal anymore. Um, I, I play beach volleyball and I had um, one of the guys I played with was 69 and he was fit and he could get the ball. And, and, you know, we were talking and I said, I am dying to get a sleep study from you. I want to see what a fit 69 year old who's playing beach volleyball to a high level. What does that person sleep look like? And after seeing thousands of sleep studies, I can assure you that doesn't matter what your Fitbit or your tracker says, very few people are sleeping normally. Those algorithms, they measure the sound in your room and some of them are relatively accurate, but I like a medical grade pulse oximeter or actual sleep study because this is something that so many people say, well, I sleep great. And then I, you know, I don't say anything. I get their sleep study and I show them they're like, oh, I guess I don't sleep great. And that was me. I thought I slept great. I could fall asleep anywhere. When I saw my sleep study, that data was irrefutable. I could see exactly what I was doing and it wasn't good. So our entire sleep system is breaking down. Why? What is this? Well, you know this, that 
My book is called The Modern Epidemic, and this is a syndrome that I have defined, and it's literally the disease of modern living, and it's caused because we as human animals have been cut off from our natural habitat. The environment and the actual sensory inputs that created us have been eliminated from our lives, and we're walking around wearing clothing, living our life indoors, wearing sunglasses and hats and sunscreen, and you are literally obfuscating the most important part of your body, your sensors. Your body is a sensor for the environment and it's taking in cues. You're taking in sound, smell, touch, taste, and there's a sixth sense and it's not ghosts, it's radiation because you can't always feel it. You don't know. And so these are the areas that we need to focus on and say, if we can give our bodies the correct inputs, we're going to be healthier. So the syndrome that I describe is literally the breakdown of how our biology works and it's a disease of the autonomic nervous system. And whatever the autonomic nervous system is controlling starts to break down. We just see sleep right away because if you don't sleep properly, you can't be healthy. If you don't sleep, you don't feel right. You don't regenerate. Kids don't grow if they don't sleep properly. You release human growth hormone only in deep sleep. And if your kid isn't getting into deep sleep, that's why your child is, has stunted growth. It's not genetic, it's environmental. So I hope that, that I don't know if I covered some of what you wanted to say, but, you know, and, and I'd love to go a little deeper into what, what does vitamin D have to do with sleep anyway? And, you know, vitamin D is, it comes from sunlight and humans always lived outdoors. So it makes sense that our bodies would have evolved to take in signals and especially energy from everywhere around us. So people think we only get our nourishment from food, but sunlight is a really profound um, energy input in our body and your body uses it to make all kinds of chemicals that people aren't studying at this point in time, but I'm really interested in. So I'm really big into sun exposure and I want to know um, what does my body need? What are the sensory inputs that are going to keep me the healthiest? Sunlight is one of them. And why will vitamin D over millions of years of evolution became this really special molecule. I like to, you know, I used to call it the universal Allen key. And this is a really cool magical molecule that goes around your body and it primarily helps you to copy your own DNA. It's an epigenetic moderator. It's a, it's the vitamin D receptor uh, will tell your body to produce different enzymes. Yeah. I, I mean, I love everything you're sharing because I think this nature divorcement syndrome is what I've heard it referred to as is the, is really the crux of why our modern society is becoming so sick and depressed and anxious and just unwell in so many levels. Yeah. And so let's get down to some practical tips for people. Right. So okay. I'm a huge proponent of this sensible sun exposure, but I want to get into the brass tacks okay. time of day where you're going to optimize your vitamin D, right. how long people should be right. spending out in the sun, the, the pitfalls of sunscreen. Okay. Let's, let's go there. So um, if, if it's okay with you, I want to, I want to just put something up just before that, before focusing on that, because I want to give people just a practical understanding of what, this is not that complex. Um, I was, you know, getting emails from this biohacker, there's 101 biohacks. And I was like, I'm into this and I'm good. That's too many biohacks. Yeah. It's too yeah. much. <laughs> so I want to simplify to the elements of life, air, earth, fire, and water. Air is sleep and breathing. Cause if you don't breathe right, you don't sleep right. Earth is feasting and fasting, what you eat and how you eat it. Fire, I call radiation rules. You want to amplify natural radiation and diminish unnatural junk light. And the last is water. And I think water is the most important because the two types of water no one's thinking about are structured water and metabolic water. And that's, you know, a discussion that's maybe a little farther down the pipeline. Um, and they're important to know how to make those two types of water, know what they are. But if we focus on um, 
fire or radiation, radiation rules, we want to do a couple of things. You already know, and your audience knows that blue light itself has actually been labeled a class 2A carcinogen. Why is that? Well, blue light destroys your body's ability to make melatonin. When it goes into your eyes, it stops melatonin production dead. So for me and all my patients, and I'm sure you do the same, um, I wear blue blockers past 8 p.m. every night. And in my uh, home, I only have a couple of red lights. And I don't mind watching TV or looking at my screens, but never without my blue blockers. So that's the first thing. I want to really limit that blue light. I want to maximize the natural light and I want to watch the sunrise. I'm not going to set my alarm. Don't ever shortchange yourself on sleep for exercise or anything else. You always want to get the maximum sleep. Let your body do what it wants to do. But if you're up, watch the sunrise. It's really important. It's like Kathy cholesterol fell off behind you. (laughs) So do you not recommend a a consistent wake schedule with an alarm? You just recommend waking up naturally whenever your body's ready. Everyone has to fit their, uh, health into their modern lives. And if you have a job, yeah. So humans ideally would be falling asleep by 10, waking up by six. And it's going to vary because in the winter, in theory, you should be sleeping longer. Okay. In the summer, the days are longer, but it depends where you live on this planet. I'm from central Canada. And as a kid, it was very hard to go to bed when it's still light at 11 or 1130 at night. Mm -hmm. And in the, um, in the winter, when it's dark by one 30 or two o'clock, it's very strange. So we have to think about the idea that, you know, we're animals on this planet and where we are geographically affects us. If you take somebody who whose ancestors evolved in Northern Australia, they have the darkest skin because that's where the sun is the most intense. And you put them in Iceland, they're going to have a hard time. You take somebody whose ancestors evolved in Iceland with the whitest skin and put them down in Northern Australia, they're going to burn and get cancer and die. Yeah. So, this, this model, this, this human body, it's site-specific. There's only a range of places that you can go without having to biohack yourself. So if you have darker skin, you have to get more sunlight or you have to get more vitamin D or preferably both. And how are you going to do that? You're from Somalia and you go to Detroit, Michigan, you're going to have a hard time staying healthy unless you actively do the things that are going to keep you healthy. So when it comes to sun exposure, the first thing that we talk about is vitamin D. Of course, you want to make vitamin D. That's very important. But sun does so much more. And you, you know these things, having looked at, you know, the, the, the way that we regulate time, there are sensors in our eyes. There are sensors around our eyes that take in radiation and report this back to your brain to control the amount of melatonin that you make. So I want everyone to understand that it's not normal or safe to stay indoors and it's not normal or safe to stay out of the sun. I don't care if your uncle had melanoma. Melanoma is not genetic. Melanoma is epigenetic and it's caused by too little sunlight, not too much. Squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma, these are the cosmetic cancers that are caused by too much sun exposure under the wrong conditions. And I can assure you that animals in the wild don't get cancer and humans living as hunter gatherers in the wild do not get skin cancer. It doesn't happen, but we're eating these industrial seed oils that are changing our cell membranes and may have an effect. We're doing all these things that are really changing what's going on. So I'm not advocating going out in the sun and frying yourself because that is not smart. It can be dangerous, but Sensible sun exposure is different for every person. There is no one answer. It's like when someone says, well, I want to get fit. Tell me what I have to do at the gym. There's an entire 30, 40 year industry of people who have been trained in this and that you have a personal trainer. If you ask me, we need personal sun trainers. We need people who are educated to start to tell people, well, it depends if you live in Ohio 
or Anchorage. It depends if you live around the Mediterranean or wherever. There's so many things that come into the idea of safe and natural sun exposure that there's no quick answer. Anyone who says there is, is completely wrong because it's specific to you. I think that there's a lot of things that we can generalize and we go over some of that, but I think that to stay out of the sun is wrong and it's dangerous. And my personal belief is that the people who have the highest cholesterol level and who spend the most time in the sun are the healthiest and will live the longest. And you know, as well as I do that the data exists for that. And when I say the highest cholesterol, what I mean is that you're eating grass fed, organic, natural fats. You're not eating, um, uh, monogastric animals that are eating, uh, corn, grain, and soy that you're eating ruminants, that you're eating grass fed organic foods and that you're, you're doing the right things. So safe sun is a highly variable topic and needs a lot more information. And that includes sunscreen. I think the biggest mistake that people make is that they take their kids outside and they get that sunscreen in a bottle. I won't say the name brands, but they spray it like they're just going to coat they're they're going to coat their kid and protect it. Now my child will not get cancer. And that is so scary and dangerous on every level. And I can go into the specific details of why that's so bad. But if you're a parent listening to this, and this is the first you're hearing of this, stop that. You got to investigate. This is not going to help your children. Those sunscreens are toxic, not just to our coral reefs, but to our biologic existence because they're unnatural. They're made with nanoparticles that are smaller than our cells can recognize. They're mutagenic, they're endocrine disruptors, bad news. Yep. And I'd love for you to, I'd love for you to explain too. So you touched on a lot and I, you know, my, my recommendation and you can, you know, disagree with me here when it comes to sensible sun exposure is to advise people go out sometime around solar noon, which is typically around 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., give or take, based on where you're at, and there's some variance there, uh, and lay out with as much skin exposure as possible for a few minutes, You know, usually starting with about five minutes, and just monitor your skin from that point on. As soon as you start to get some red flushing or blood pooling to the skin, this is an indication you're going to start to get a sunburn, and you should flip over uh, or find shade. And some people can tolerate 10, some people can tolerate 20 or 30 minutes, some people with very fair skin that aren't eating well, where their nutrition is really lousy, maybe only tolerate four or five minutes, but that's, that's okay. Go out for four or five minutes on your back, flip over to your chest, do another four or five minutes and just kind of keep an eye on your skin and don't overdo it and go to the beach for the first time in six months and spend four hours in the sun and think that the sunscreen is protecting you. Because what I want you to share about Dr. Joel is how the sunscreen is protecting against one type of ultraviolet radiation, but not against the other type and how I want you to break down the details and the science of how that really can cause more damage because it's blunting the body's protective mechanisms. Yeah. So yeah, that that's a lot. And, and this information, just even the way you posed the question to me, this is, I believe, some of the most important information regarding our health. So the first thing people need to understand is that when you go and do whatever your sun exposure, you can always cover your face. Your yep. face is out there every day. If you're going to go get intentional sun exposure, just cover it. No yep. need to get extra exposure there. So um, I want to basically start at sunscreens and to know that we're not the first people to use sunscreens. The Romans made sunscreens and they used to use olive oil and fine sand. And that was our sunscreen. And that was probably one of the best and safest sunscreen because the olive oil did not have canola oil snuck in there and it was organic. And sand is a physical barrier. Now humans have their own sunscreen. It's a crazy interesting uh, chemical called melanin. 
And this is what Mother Nature created through evolution to block the damaging rays of the sun and to prevent DNA damage and sun exposure in general. And what's so interesting is that your body literally, if you go in the sun, your body will use motor protein enzymes to start to pull melanin over to protect you from the sun. And so we have this great system to protect ourselves from the sun, but it's just like everything else. It's been completely broken because of how we live. Now, if you gave up your day job and you were just going to pitch a tent in the forest and you were just going to be a modern hunter-gatherer and go out there and just try and survive, you would be fine. You'd never need sunscreen. Or if you did, it wouldn't be a big deal. You'd gradually increase your sun exposure over time. You also wouldn't be vitamin D deficient. So people who have a higher vitamin D level, they will tan faster. Why? Because vitamin D regulates a lot of different gene expression. So those people who have a higher, if you raise your vitamin D level with supplements and you go in the sun, you may be shocked that you tan. And I've got my mug here. This is uh, my miserable millennials. So these are some of the, the caricatures or transformation stories that have. And you see on the other side, they become magnificent millennials. And millennials are really interesting because they all say the same thing. They don't like to go in the sun. They hate it because they can't see their screens, but they all burn. They say, oh, I can't go in the sun. I get burnt. And what they're doing is they're living their life indoors, eating industrial seed oils and probably processed vegetarian or vegan foods. And then they're going in the sun and they're burning because they don't have an idea of what a suntan really is. And just, you know, I'm pretty tanned here. I live in Southern California. I play beach volleyball, but I've been approached by younger people saying, how did you do that? I'm like, what, how did you get that tan? I've been thinking of trying it. Like, okay. That's interesting because they've been told from their, their whole life, the sun is dangerous. Stay yeah. out of the sun. You know, yeah. I, I remember when my mother came home literally one day and said, kids, you should not be in the sun. I bought some sunscreen and you need to wear it. You know, and this was, you know, 1980s. This is when this all started. Same time she brought home margarine and said, meat is bad and we're going to be eating more heart healthy grains. You know, we used to eat meat seven days a week. So when you give your body the right elements and you go in the sun gradually, then you can protect yourself. And this is a really good opportunity for me to break something. And this is part of my material that I'm trying to share is something called cholesterol sulfate. I'm not sure if you've uh, investigated some of that for, of what I've been doing with that. This is something I haven't um, been pushing forward. I, I haven't really launched all my, all my things, but the, the character that fell was Kathy cholesterol. And I want people to know that we actually have a really unique sun filtering system, but you have to understand how it works. You need two things. Aside from gradual sun exposure, you need to have enough cholesterol in your body. You need to have enough sulfur in your body and you need to go out into the sun. And what's supposed to happen, I believe this is one of the most important reactions that is solar powered. I think it's probably, it's on par, maybe more important than producing vitamin D is the production of cholesterol sulfate. I think this is one of the most important molecules. I, I call it a power couple. I have my character of sulfur, my character of cholesterol, and they get joined together to become cholesterol sulfate. And that happens by a specific enzyme called endothelial nitric oxide synthase that you know, and most people think about that is the enzyme that produces nitric oxide, and it does. But cholesterol sulfate has another special power is that this enzyme also makes cholesterol sulfate. And why is that important? Well, when you join cholesterol to sulfur, you change cholesterol's hydrophobic nature 
because sulfur is hydrophilic. It loves to be in water. Cholesterol is a fat. It's extremely hydrophobic. It doesn't want to be in water. And when you join them, you get a molecule that's amphiphilic. It is both goes in the water and goes in, um, in fat. And that is the most important molecule, in my opinion, for our heart health, for our blood vessel health, for our skin health and to protect us from solar radiation. So when you create that molecule and you have enough cholesterol sulfate, the sunlight itself will start to actually produce a cross-legged mesh layer uh, of to protect you from sunlight. And when I say that, it's really interesting because there's people who have mutations, people with red hair who live in northern climates. There's a known mutation that they do not make the same type of cholesterol sulfate. They do not build up. They, they actually have a genetic variation where it's easier to let in sunlight. And of course it makes sense because vitamin D is so important that those people in, in those um, climates where there was a mutation to let in more sunlight, it was a massive success. And that became part of the genetic profile of people with lighter skin who live in Northern climates. So a, a sulfur deficiency is endemic. Sulfur is out of our food chain. And now we have people on cholesterol statins, and then we have people staying out of the sun. This is the exact opposite of what we need. We're in total agreement on that. And we're also in total agreement that the sun provides just a plethora of benefits above and beyond vitamin D, which in itself is very key. But with that being said, what about for people who may implement this information They may like lay out for an hour or two, get their sunlight, but their vitamin D status is still suboptimal. Let's say in the, you know, 20 to 30 range rather than 60 to 80, which I would consider ideal. Uh, or on the flip side, people who live on the East Coast or like you living in Canada yeah. during the winter months, there's four feet of snow outside, right? I get it. The sun's helpful, but I'm not in Southern California like you are. What can I do? What do you tell those people, Dr. Troll? You have to supplement. So I'd like people to think of it this way. There is a hormone that regulates your sleep cycle, your gut microbiome, and access to a lot of your genes. That hormone is called vitamin D. When... You, so it's anyone listening to this. I mean, very few people don't know somebody who's had a diagnosis of cancer. Now, if you look at those people with the initial diagnosis of cancer, you're never going to find anyone who has a high vitamin D level. You're not going to find that. Now you may find somebody who's had cancer who now has a high vitamin D level because they supplemented, but the lower the vitamin D level goes, the more susceptible you are to cancer. And I'm happy to go down the biochemical pathway of that. But before I say that, so what are people afraid of? They're afraid of getting cancer. They're afraid of dementia and they're afraid of heart disease. No one wants that. So through thousands of studies, we can see that all the people who have cancer have extremely low vitamin D. And why would we not be focused on that? Why does every medical doctor, when you walk into their office, the first thing they should be saying is, hey, we don't really know what causes cancer, kind of, but it seems very correlated with vitamin D. So I think we should be testing your vitamin D and I think we should be managing it because you're not a hunter-gatherer or you live in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. So we're going to actively monitor and manage your vitamin D status. That doesn't happen because you can't patent vitamin D and sunlight is free. And doctors are much more concerned with your cholesterol level because they have a product that has been ingrained into the medical institutions that they sell that makes billions of dollars. And they don't necessarily know how badly they've been duped into this cholesterol total nonsense fairy tale. I personally think that the cholesterol scam 
is right up there on the same order of doctors not thinking the vitamin D is one of the most important things. And even vitamin K2, because this, this information is 80 years old. So the idea that people aren't, this isn't their first focus to me is shocking. The idea that doctors haven't caught on to this is scandalous. And the idea that vitamin D regulates so many different things that, that people aren't talking about is all due to the fact that Weston Price's information was never taught and is still not taught in any medical or dental school today that's a Western style medical school. That I believe is the biggest scandal and the focus is completely wrong. Doctors aren't that interested in this, but they should be. You're, my patients tell me all the time, I tried to get my vitamin D tested, but insurance didn't cover it. And if insurance companies really wanted to save their money, they would say everyone's mandated with two vitamin D tests per year. And there's a mandate in Canada. So I'm Canadian. I'm really disappointed in my home country. Socialized medicine. There is no recommendation for vitamin D. No one's allowed to get tested because it would bankrupt the country, but almost everyone in Canada is vitamin D deficient because of the conditions we talked about. So this is a small country, 30 million people, and they can easily mandate, even if they mandated 2000 IU, we're going to recommend to all patients 2000 IU of D3 with some K2, the amount of cancer cases would drop. Both my parents died of pancreatic cancer. They never had a vitamin D test in their life. They never supplemented vitamin D. And I watched them die a death of vitamin D deficiency. I suffered personally for the first 48 years of my life, never, never having had a vitamin D test. And it's what caused my autoimmune disease. It was at the root cause of everything that was wrong with me. Um, and so the idea that this isn't more important is ridiculous. And so you want to monitor your vitamin D where there's home testing here in the US and you want to supplement. And if you can show me, anyone out listening to this can show me one single study, show me one person that died of a vitamin D overdose. I'd still love to have that data, but I can show you the millions of people around the world who've died from cancer. And that's how strongly I feel about this. And I don't want people to overdose on vitamin D, but there's this ridiculous fear that, you know, when I tell my patients to take 10,000 IU of vitamin D, they always recoil like, doc, that must be a horse pill. You're trying to kill me. And, and I say, well, that's 0.25 milligrams. And I used to write it on a piece of paper. I still give all my patients a written instruction. I say, 10,000 IU of vitamin D sounds toxic, right? And I cover it up and I show them 0.25 milligrams. And I show, hey, take 0.25 milligrams. And you say, well, is that enough? <laughs> so I want people to know that you, unless you're listening to this and you are a, a functional medicine doctor, this isn't your job to know this. This is your doctor's job. And when I first you know, started telling my patients to take 10,000 IU, they would tell me the stories that their doctor would literally recoil and say, 10,000, that's toxic. Show me a single study that can even hint that 10,000 IU is toxic. And, you know, it doesn't exist. Well, what I've seen people coming to me for help with, you know, their health, their medical doctors are telling them, okay, you have a vitamin D deficiency, take 50,000 IUs once a week yep. for eight weeks and you're good to go. Huh. And it's like, how does that make any logical sense? Why wouldn't you take it in smaller increments daily and understand that in eight weeks, you're not just going to completely resolve your lifelong need for this incredibly important vitamin. Uh, so I I'm with you in that th this education needs to get out there because it's, it would save uh, from estimates I've seen from the vitamin D research council, that if we were to provide the, the public with about 40 to $50 of vitamin D supplements per year per person, 
versus we're talking less than five bucks a month. Yep. It would cut healthcare costs by upwards of 25%, which is equates to over a trillion dollars right. in okay. healthcare costs. And so I would argue that it's even much higher than that. Sure, because sure. when you start to dig in to what is diabetes, do you know that those pancreatic cells without vitamin D, they can't function properly? And let's talk about heart disease, your endothelial cells, the cells that line your, your blood vessels, they can't function without vitamin D. We're talking about the RAS system, the renin-angiotensin system that's regulating your blood pressure is highly linked to vitamin D. Just put in renin-angiotensin, vitamin D, and PubMed and just see what comes up. And these aren't mysteries. They're just not interesting, interesting to doctors. That's not their narrative. And furthermore, that, that, uh, that 50,000 IU is often D2. To anyone out there, do not take D2. That is the plant version of vitamin D, and you cannot buy it by accident. It's not for sale. It's only in that prescription. Now, some doctors are prescribing the 50,000 IU of D3, but they're not addressing the root cause of the deficiency in the first place. You are not fixed. If your doctor fixed your vitamin D deficiency, did they follow up with it? And then did you change your lifestyle habits to allow yourself to start to have a higher vitamin D level and your doctor doesn't know any of this. So that's why I say your doctor doesn't know. And at this point in time, I'm age 54. If I insult any medical doctors, I really don't care. This is really scandalous. The idea yeah. that this isn't on everyone's radar and it's ridiculous and it's dangerous. You know, to anyone listening to this, if you have had thyroid cancer or breast cancer or a younger person, you know you've been told your vitamin D level was low for a long time, but you didn't think it was important because your doctor didn't know it was important and you don't know what you don't know. And that's it. And that's why I'm such a big advocate of people taking back control of their health and understanding medical doctors mean well, but they aren't educated in this stuff. And it's really up to you to take control of your own health and to take this as a priority and to really educate and empower yourself to make these decisions because you can't always rely on external resources because not everyone is aware of these things. Um, so I, I love everything you're sharing. I want to talk a couple cofactors. I know you've, you mentioned K2 a number of times and a question I get often is what are the best food sources of K2? If I'm eating good quality grass-fed animal foods, if I'm getting some through my food, do I still need to bring in supplemental K2 to augment the vitamin D supplementation? What would you advise there? Okay. So, and these are my opinions, but there is no toxic level of K2. K2 is found, it, it basically, you can get K2 naturally in some hard cheeses. You can get it in grass-fed animal meat. And you can eat it intentionally in something called natto, which is Japanese fermented bean curd. And anyone who's tried it knows it's really disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can get that way. So my personal opinion is when I look at the Rotterdam study and I look at the, um, uh, the calcium paradox, how doctors think that even though they're giving calcium to these older women, there's a paradox because their bones aren't getting any dense. They're missing K2. What uh, vitamin K2 will remove calcium from your aorta. Now, do you want calcium in your aorta? I don't think so. Do you think you're getting all your K2 from eating this great diet? Even if you are focused on grass-fed meats, even if you are trying to eat hard organic cheeses, the answer to the question to me is no. That K2 is one of the things that I will supplement every day. And I tried to eat nat natto. It was gross. But I already eat a grass-fed organic diet and all these different things, but I do a lot of fasting. And I think that this simple chemical that is a cofactor, not just for the two enzymes 
that bind calcium and put it into the matrix of bone. But last time I checked, there were 17 known enzymes that needed vitamin K2 as a cofactor. That's one of the things I don't want to gamble with. I'm not going to gamble with three. These are my three big ones, vitamin D3, vitamin K2, and magnesium. I call them the terrific trio. You may have seen my cartoon characters that show that. And the reason I want this to be in a cartoon is because those three chemical components can eliminate, I, in my opinion, 75, 80% of the chronic illness that I see around me every day as a doctor and a clinician with over 30 years experience. So those are the ones that I want to make sure I supplement. With magnesium, you can take too much, but your body will release it. There's no overdose with magnesium. Worst you're going to do is give yourself a case of the runs. We talked about vitamin D. I don't believe there's a K2 overdose and no one's eating buckets of K2. So those are my three key ingredients. Those are the ones that I make sure I get all the time. And then other than that, there's some other supplements. I believe supplementing sulfur, um, organic sulfur, MSM, because I think it is probably right in there at the core and root cause of, of cardiovascular disease and cancer. And I believe that due to a lack of cholesterol sulfate, that's really what I truly believe. There is no one thing that causes, it's a combination. The vitamins and minerals that we evolved to have in abundance are gone and everyone breaks down differently. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting. You share about your parents passing from pancreatic cancer. My mom passed pancreatic cancer. That's what spun me into this world of natural health and studying functional naturopathic medicine. Uh, so I didn't realize we had that uh, connection until you mentioned it just a few moments ago. Um, as, as we wrap up, we've shared a ton of great information, Dr. Joel. I've been loving this. Um, I'd love to just outline some tips and strategies and just overall information on what you refer to as a deuterium depletion lifestyle. And I haven't had anyone on the podcast yet that talked about deuterium water. So many of my listeners may not even know what that is uh, or what deuterium as a molecule is. So if you can give a brief overview and then follow it up with some advice on how we can minimize our exposure to this. Right. Wow. So deuterium is something that's really hard to get your mind around. Deuterium is a stable hydrogen isotope. And that shouldn't mean anything to almost anyone. You're going to be seeing deuterium depleted water for sale. This is a special medical grade water that has less deuterium. So some people classify deuterium as a toxin. I don't because it's a natural element. So we have elements that make up molecules and we can look at water. Water is a molecule. It's made up of two different elements, oxygen and hydrogen. You know it as H2O. So the two hydrogen atoms are elements and the oxygen atom is an element. And when you put them together, they form a molecule. Now, hydrogen has three different forms in this universe. There is protium, which is regular hydrogen. There's deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen. And there's tritium, which is radioactive, which we can put aside. And for anyone who knows what an isotope is, an isotope is an identical version of an element, except that it differs in the amount of neutrons. Now, everything that you see around you, this desk, me, you, everything that you're looking at is made up of three basic subatomic particles, electrons, protons, and neutrons. Easy to remember, electrons have a negative charge, the yin. Um, protons have a positive charge, the yang. And neutrons are neutral. And a positive and a negative come together and they get neutralized. And that's it. There's only three subatomic particles. And every element is made up of different combinations of those three subatomic particles. So when we come to hydrogen, it is the simplest and most abundant element in the universe. And it consists of one electron and one proton. And 
We didn't talk a lot about my cartoon characters, but Hydrogen um, sings, sings a song, The Yin and Yang of Life. And Hydrogen is very flighty because it comes apart easily. That proton and that electron, they're only loosely held together and we separate them all the time. That's what photosynthesis does. And that's what we do in the electron transport chain. We do this also making structured water. When you add an extra neutron in, you double the weight of this because the, the electron is weightless. The proton is quite heavy. So when you add a neutron, you just double the weight. So now you have heavy hydrogen. And you've heard of this before for nuclear reactors and making the atomic bomb. And that's what they used. So this other version of hydrogen, I like to call it hydrogen's evil twin brother. This is a version of hydrogen that our body sees as aging. And I call it deuterium father time because as more deuterium builds up in your body, your body actually sees that as aging. And why it's so important is that you want to limit the amount of deuterium that comes into your body. Where is deuterium hiding? Sugar, high fructose corn syrup, carbohydrates, starchy things. Those are all high in deuterium. You want to avoid those. You want to get rid of it. You can't completely avoid deuterium. So you want to limit your intake and you want to maximize your depletion, getting it out of you. And so are you sure you're ready for me to go on? This is, this is a, like, it's a lot of stuff. And we're going to go back to uh, air, earth, fire, and water, go back to the elements of life. You deplete your deuterium in your sleep when you breathe. You deplete your deuterium or you make, you have less deuterium coming in if you intermittently fast. That's why fasting, intermittent fasting is so profound. People are all doing it. No one's really getting why it's working. And that's because deuterium is so destructive to your body that limiting it coming into your body makes you healthier. And it does this because this heavy hydrogen gets everywhere. And when it gets into an enzyme, the enzyme slows down its function. It lowers its reaction rate due to the kinetic isotope effect. And this is real. This is what chemists use around the world to monitor the rates of reactions. So you want to adopt a deuterium depletion lifestyle, proper sleep and breathing, a ketogenic diet, high fat, low carb, the healthiest food on the planet, it comes from ruminants because they filter their food and the gut microbiome takes away the deuterium, bacteria feed on deuterium. And the meat that's on ruminants, especially the fat, is the lowest component of deuterium. And anything that lowers your deuterium technically makes you younger and is much healthier for you. So feasting and fasting, ketogenic diet, grass-fed organic, you can do cyclic keto, I don't want to argue about all that stuff. We get into that at a different time. Radiation rules. Sunlight itself is deuterium depleting for multiple reasons. Um, UV radiation changes the viscosity of the mitochondrial matrix water. It takes away from you overdoing your deuterium. If you're going to eat sugary fruit, you want to eat that sugary fruit outside with your clothes off at the latitude it was grown at because the sunlight will basically create more deuterium in areas with sol stronger solar radiation. So this is, a, and none of this should make sense to, to people. This is quite confusing, but um, the last is water. So you can drink deuterium depleted water, but it's very expensive and it's not required. You just want to check your water source, make sure it's filtered, and you want to be aware of these things. So all of the current biohacking protocols that people are doing, sauna therapy is a really great way to deplete deuterium. Um, so these are the things that will literally lower your deuterium exposure, and you want to you know, start to understand how your body works. I have my video game is called Deuterium Depletion. And you become a character that starts to learn how to deplete deuterium. That's a lot of information. So I just threw oh, like no, five I love years it. of, all right, cool. <laughs> that was a great synopsis. And it's just an additional reason 
to do all these things that we already know are healthy. Sun exposure, eating grass-fed, high-quality animal protein, minimizing starches and sugars, getting out for your sunshine, you know, fasting and not eating around the clock. All these things are healthy for a million reasons. And with your discussion on deuterium, it just brought in another one. So I think it's just great you know, inspiration for people to go out and continue to make these changes in their lifestyle and just another added layer of benefit that they're receiving. It gives us a quantum physics explanation of why those things work so well. And yeah. That's, again, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Dr. Joel. I'd love to wrap up by uh, having you share where people can find more about your work. Uh, if I understand correctly, you have uh, a physical private practice in Los Angeles, correct? Correct. Yep. So I'm located in Manhattan Beach, California. Um, I have a dental practice. We're called Modern American Dentistry. And I have a sleep restoration program that I base out of here called Modern Sleep Solutions. And you can Google either of those. But what I'm most excited about is my new paradigm that is at modernhuntergatherers.com because we have the biology of a hunter-gatherer, but we live in the modern world and you want to know how to be a modern hunter-gatherer. And that's the fun stuff that I want to show people about. So you can reach me at any of those. My Instagram is modern underscore hunter underscore gatherers. And I'd love to hear from people and see what kind of success they have taking on some of these changes they can make in their life. I'll put all those links in the show notes, folks. And I really appreciate your time and all the great, great information you shared, Dr. Joel. So thank you, man. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you found it helpful, please share it along to anyone else you believe it can serve. You can find the show notes and resources we discussed at ryankennedyshow.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show. Your feedback helps to support me on my mission to positively impact as many people as possible with this information. Much love, everyone.